Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops-Tay-Shwetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Shwetmakulu. And today's text, The Catcher in the Rye, is set in Manhattan, the traditional home of the Wappinger and Munsee Lenape peoples. Mm-hmm. Joe, mm-hmm. this is the first book of our banned book club. Indeed. And it was published in 1951? Yes. Something like that. Mm-hmm. And I found it to be a little bit of a struggle. Yes. And I'm excited to talk to you about it today. Okay. (laughs) Normally when I find a book to be a struggle, I want to avoid the podcast. But today, (laughs) I'm I'm really eager to unpack this with you because this is a book that's a classic. It's also a book that is one of the top 10 most banned and challenged books of all time. Mm -hmm. I think that for a contemporary reader, it's often really hard to figure out why and yet the bans and challenges of this book do go to as recently as 2010 yeah it's interesting right because of course this is book club so we did solicit listener responses and we ended up hearing back from four people and i fully think that two of them talked about how this book is a bit of a mystery as to why it ultimately ends up getting banned And Britta, do you want to clarify, why does The Catcher in the Rye normally get banned? Yeah, so um, a bunch of reasons. I would say primarily it seems to get banned for language. Mm -hmm. It gets banned for sexual content, which we're definitely going to talk about today because as Tea Books and Chocolate points out in, in her response to us, there's a lot of talk of sex, but sex never actually happens in this book. Yes. Um, so yeah, so definitely, you know, this notion of obscenity comes up again and again, and we've seen it outright banned as early as 1960. In 1960, a teacher was fired in Tulsa, Oklahoma for assigning the book. The teacher got reinstated, but the book remained banned. Hmm. And that was over language primarily. And as recently right. as 2010 in Florida, a parent complained about language But the book, though challenged, was retained by the school library. So Hmm. that part hasn't changed. But through the 80s, there were some really, I was going to say interesting, but maybe I don't really mean interesting. Mm, No. In the 80s, we saw a lot of attempts to ban this book for blasphemy in particular. Blasphemy and loose morality. (laughs) <laughs> and I'll share a successful attempt to ban it out of California, uh, the Murak Joint Unified School District. They banned the book from school reading lists and removed it from the library. And someone pointed out it doesn't belong in a public high school because this is a woman named Patty Salazar in 1989. It uses the Lord's name in vain 200 times. That's enough reason to ban it right there. They say it describes reality, but I say, let's back up from reality. Let's go backwards. Let's go back to when we didn't have an immoral society. Direct quote. (laughs) Patty, sweetie, darling, I know it's 1989. It's a completely different age, but let's go backwards. (laughs) Patty. (laughs) Yeah. 
So this is the general theme in the bannings of The Catcher in the Rye. Language, Mm -hmm. blasphemy, immorality, sexuality. And I think we're going to talk about all of those things today. Because at the core, I think that Holden Caulfield is just a teenager who's wrestling with some big ideas. Yes. And I think just the very idea of teenagers wrestling with big ideas, no matter how they do it, tends to make a certain population of folks pretty uncomfortable. Mm Mm-hmm. I'll confess when I was looking up some of the reasons that it gets challenged or banned, it made a bit more sense back in the 60s. Uh, So this book, as you mentioned, published in 1951. And as we talked about a couple of times on the podcast, that's right around the time when the definition of teenager or YA was actually coming Mm -hmm. into the popular consciousness. So I can understand adults maybe being confronted by this coming of age narrative and I mean, in some ways, this book doesn't even feel like YA, right? Like it it very much feels like an adult text that is written about a childhood experience. Mm -hmm. And I also have thoughts about the bracketing device in which it's revealed that Holden has actually been institutionalized. And this is all kind of him reflecting on this three day, almost manic period where totally manic period. Does he sleep at all in those three days? It doesn't seem like it. No, no. So I I found that that was really interesting in the way that it it maybe made more sense back then, but it was shocking to me from a contemporary perspective to hear that this book was still being challenged into the 2000s, because I think at least one or two folks said, I can't believe that this book still ends up on any of these lists, because especially when you look at some of the other books that are creeping up there in terms of ban and challenges, this is child's play, right? I do sometimes think, oh, and by the way, I have to share this. In 1963, the book was challenged for being anti-white, which I... (laughs) Not a thing. A, not a thing, and B, pardon? (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyway. I fully expected that people would try to challenge it because it was like an American, if we're being honest. Yeah, and you know what? I think sometimes that's what they mean when they say blasphemy. They mean American. But Joe, you know, you asked this question, like, why in the 2000s? I think one of the more insipid dangers of a book being challenged or banned is that the challenge or the ban ends up coming before people's understanding of the text. So I think at least in part, maybe more contemporary bannings of this book have more to do with the sort of ethos around Catcher in the Rye Mm -hmm. than they have to do with Catcher in the Rye itself. Does that make sense? (laughs) Do you mean uh, people have heard that it has been frequently banned or challenged and therefore they continue to believe it should be despite maybe not having read the book? Well, because something that we talked about when we first introduced Book Club is that like, oftentimes books that make their way onto challenged and banned book lists, when you talk to the people who are trying to challenge or ban the book they're doing Mm -hmm. so without having read it and actually joe i feel like uh, folks won't know when we're recording this but yesterday was holocaust memorial day it was also the day that tennessee did in at least one high school ban mouse by art spiegelman yeah oh boy which is a nonfiction comic about the Holocaust. and there's another example where if you read the kinds of challenges that come up like People are challenging that comic because of language, when the content of the comic is about a genocide. And I have to believe that 
a lot of the people jumping on that bandwagon cannot possibly have opened the book. They're basing mm-hmm. it on a reputation of a comic and a reputation of an artist like Spiegelman, who has a reputation for being crude. Right. More than for the text itself. And I wonder if something like that is happening with Catcher in the Rye, too. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. And we're going to have a very candid, very passionate conversation next week when we talk about Unpregnant and the state of Mm -hmm. abortion and women's reproductive health. And folks, it's a a banger. So I want to say, like, strap in because I think it's going to (laughs) be one of our best episodes. But specifically when it comes to things like Mouse and even Catcher in the Rye and Ban and Challenge books in general... I think what we're also seeing is people challenging things, but actually being perturbed or being turned off of something for completely other reasons. So I don't believe for a second that it has anything to do with crudeness or language in Mouse. I think it's actually a pervasive anti-Semitic sentiment mm-hmm. that has been mm-hmm. on the rise in the last couple of years. And this is a great opportunity for folks who want to get rid of that to say oh yeah no it's actually about this thing Mm -hmm. it's the left hand and the right hand meaning two completely different things and with catcher in the rye it's interesting to have seen its progression in terms of the ban and challenges because it feels like it's a bit of a lightning rod in terms of what's happening in particular decades and it attracts that attention and that's why people continue to challenge it Yeah, I mean, that totally makes sense. When I read Catcher in the Rye now, the things I am surprised don't come up in the challenge Mm -hmm. list is like, what is going on with queerness in this book, right? And the way Mm -hmm. homosexuality is framed, but also contextualized. And the idea that somebody has called this book anti-white, when you hear about how Holden describes people of other Mm -hmm. races throughout the book, right? It's wild to me. I don't want to see any book banned or challenged, but no, there's no but there. I don't want to see any book banned or challenged, period. Mm -hmm. And also, something we talked about last day is like this underlying philosophy that underpins the banning of books and how it tends to come from a more conservative, right-wing, reactionary anti-progressive perspective you really see that here because if you wanted to make a case to challenge catcher in the rye from the left i think that you could it's just that we never see people trying to do that Mm -mm. it's there like there's definitely uncomfortableness with the way that holden is talking about the relationship with women and we'll talk about that when we get to some of the sex stuff Obviously, the stuff about people of color, there's a lot of classism, but nothing is so egregious that it would ever warrant outrage, right? Like, Mm. in part, it's a reflection of the time in which it was written, and it has not aged well. And I think contemporary audiences in particular don't care for that. Like, women are objects in this book, right? And you could make the argument, oh, okay, well, it's a teenage boy in the 50s he doesn't have a kind of understanding that we would maybe have or expect nowadays sure okay but again like that's not something that anybody's gonna gravitate to and say oh well this book is super offensive and it can't be read by anybody if anything when i read this i just think oh i can't believe that eight graders would read this because (laughs) this book is too adult in terms of the actual way that it's written like the terminology and the structure thematically sure but i would say this is very much like a high school text to me i can't imagine you know 12 or 13 year olds reading it and getting a grasp of the material i read it in grade 11 i remember very clearly reading it with mr morgan my english teacher 
And I remember Mr. Morgan like loved Holden Caulfield and like hmm. broke down in tears one day in class when we were reading the book aloud. And I was confused then because, well, teachers showing emotion is always really overwhelming, but also right. <laughs> because I just did not connect to this book at all as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And I get it now a little bit more. I think I have more empathy for Holden as a character. Right. But I'm still not sure it's a book for teenagers. And I don't mean that in a challenger band way. I mean that in the same way that like, they made us read The Stone Angel in grade 10. I do love The Stone Angel, though. Great book. Beautiful book. Not something grade 10 students get anything out of, except why is this old lady lying on a beach? Right. <laughs> <laughs> because there's some life context that's required yeah. to understand it. And I think that apart and aside from banning and challenging books, I think sometimes we do books disservice by how we present them and when we present them to kids. Mm. Okay, I, I love that, but also I feel like that is a whole separate discussion that I want to have with you some other day. <laughs> okay, let's put a pin in that and come back to that. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I mean, let's maybe talk a little bit about Holden as a character yeah. and the trauma. Because one of the things that you were interested in doing on this revisit was seeing if you did have more empathy or if you could recontextualize your dislike for this book because he is undergoing some pretty serious issues that you maybe didn't appreciate on a first read. Yeah, definitely. So a little kind of mini synopsis for those who haven't read oh, right. or Catcher in the Rye <laughs> before we get there. Um, yeah, so basically, I mean, a lot of nothing happens in this book, right? Yeah, it's character driven, not plot. Yeah, Holden Caulfield has been kicked out of yet another private school. We get the sense that this is obviously a pattern. He hasn't made it through a full year at any school. Mm -hmm. And in this moment, he is really kind of lost and at sea. And he goes wandering, basically, through the streets of Manhattan for three days. He mm -hmm. is coping with the loss of his younger brother, Allie, who has passed away. His mother is still absolutely consumed by that grief and hasn't mm -hmm. sort of emerged back to him from there. We also, over the course of the narrative, um, find out that he witnessed the suicide of another kid at one of the schools he went to. Mm -hmm. um, he also lets it slip in a very, in a way that I missed the first time I read this book, that he's lived with a history of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And we're sort of trapped up inside Holden's head as he tries to externalize everything that makes him miserable in the world. And it's one of the frustrations of this book, right, for me, is that we spend the whole time hearing about how everyone else is a fake and a phony and everyone else is a hypocrite and everyone else is this and everyone else is that. And we get very little introspection, which mm -hmm. is both developmentally appropriate and deeply annoying. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Uh, shout out to anybody who struggled to read this, because even if Holden is undergoing a lot of trauma and he's got like a bunch of baggage that he's working through, he is also deeply frustrating and annoying. And it can be it can be a lot to have to be stuck in his head, particularly during this time period. It's also, you know, and I'll, I'll kind of reflect on Gavin's comments who said through Twitter, part of my frustration with Holden's character is that he has a ton of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. Like he just keeps 
falling out of these expensive private schools. Although one of the things that you learn about these private schools as you read the book is that like there's very little care in these spaces. Yeah. The few teachers who actually care about students are the standout characters. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he has access to so much. And I know that as a teenager, I read this and I was just really frustrated. And Gavin very kindly points out in his comments that first world problems are still problems for people who experience them and it doesn't mean that and it doesn't matter that other people have it worse right and i agree Mm -hmm. and yet also there's such a lack of perspective in the way salinger has created caulfield's character and on the one hand that's a triumph because Mm -hmm. it really does feel like i am trapped inside a teenage boy's head when i read this book yeah and at the same time Oh, gosh. I do not want to be trapped inside a teenage boy's head. <laughs> Especially this one, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, I can understand why there's been a longevity to the book, because it is definitely constructed in that regard. It's doing a really good job of giving some insight into the challenges that boys would have at this time. That also doesn't make it easy, right? And I think one of the things that really comes out in Miriam's response is it's hard to have empathy for this rich white boy whose problems are are definitely still problems to him, but it's hard, especially in a contemporary position, to say like, oh, poor little rich white boy. Mm-hmm. It's a struggle. And I, mm-hmm. I think it's important to acknowledge like this is not an easy book to read, especially nowadays. Definitely. And, you know, I I made a really strong effort to try to put my trauma senses out (laughs) as I read this book and to not get irritated by him and instead to try to read what is underneath that self-involved, obsessively repetitive. And there's obviously a lot of sadness that underpins all of this, a lot of sadness and a lot of loneliness, right? A lot of people point to the scene with the sex worker as the reason why the book gets banned. Right. I find that scene so tragic because Holden is so completely out of ideas about how to connect with other people. Mm -hmm. And even when this sex worker comes to his room, he can't connect there. Right. And he, it's Mm -hmm. because there's all these layers of falsehood, right? Like he tells her that the reason they can't have sex is because he's just had surgery. And she's like, well, you look fine. He's like, yeah, but I did have surgery, so I can't. So we should just talk instead. And of -hmm. course her back is up because this strange man is lying to her and it's probably terrifying. (laughs) And yet he tells us over and over again that he hates phonies, but every second sentence he says to another human being is a lie. And all of these hypocrisies, they just add up mm-hmm. to make it so that I can recognize the pain. I feel his sadness. I actually genuinely am moved to tears by him in some scenes. And also, I don't want to be here. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's really complicated in that regard. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like I understand now why people have such a strong reaction to this book, because you can deeply empathize with his situation. You can see yourself in his situation, but also you can very easily hate him, call him a hypocrite, call him privileged. 
this is also the tale of a boy who's on the cusp of adulthood with seemingly very little direction, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a yearning for childhood here and a sense of childhood lost, right? Like, I think that's why he has such a, a strong conviction to both his dead sibling, because of course, there's like a stuntedness there, like the relationship was never able to progress. So he can idolize the relationship he had with Ali. And then he also has this younger sister who is honestly the definition of precocious child, right? Like mm-hmm. she's very erudite. She's super cute. But also you're just like, okay. But I, I do think it's really interesting, like, especially when you get to the end of the book, how he he wants to run away from his problems. And he's got this fantasy life that he envisions everything will just be fine. I'll just go to the country. (laughs) And really, the groundedness is in his relationship to his sister. But it's pretty deeply ironic that he ends up finding one piece of happiness the entire book. He's never happy. He's always sad. He's lost in his own thoughts. And the only piece of happiness he gets is watching his sister being a child at a Mm -hmm. carousel. Well, in many ways, it's a book about someone who feels like they missed out on a proper childhood, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, he kind of did. I always think, and listeners can feel free to write in and contradict me, I always think boarding school feels just sad. (laughs) Because childhood is so fleeting, and to spend that time sort of being professionalized and being treated like a little adult and and not clearly not getting the care and compassion that you need, I think is really Mm -hmm. sad. It's interesting, that quote I gave you earlier was from when the book was banned in 1989 in California. Mm-hmm. There's another really good quote from that fight by one of the teachers, obviously in defense of the book. And she says, you know, she's pointing out the irony in the dislike that people have for Holden as the protagonist. And she says, they're being just like Holden. They're trying to be <laughs> catchers in the rye, right? Like you have this idea of what childhood is and you're trying to enforce protect it. Protect it, yeah. Protect it. And it's impossible because it's a moment that's fleeting. Once it's gone, it's gone and you have to move past that point in your life. Mm-hmm. And I that really struck me because I think that I'm not trying to impose like a bucolic childhood on Holden. I'm trying to impose some sort of self-awareness on Holden. Mm. But I too am being frustrated with the book for being something that it's not. And right. yeah, it was kind of arresting to see that comment. Yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciate those kinds of comments because they force us to take that self-exploratory step back and say, okay, why do I not like this book? And actually Miriam ended up sending us a follow-up email to the one that she wrote specifically about the book, talking about the conversation that we had in Insurgent about unlikable characters. Mm. And is it that we don't like the characters? Is it that we see something in the characters that we don't like about ourselves? Is it that the characters are just responding in a different way than we ourselves would? Mm. I think those are really interesting and valuable questions to ask especially when we get to such a controversial character like Holden, where people just really have these divisive reactions to a fictional character. And what does it say about us as readers, right? Yeah. Can I make a note to Miriam about the Insurgent episode based on her email? (laughs) (laughs) If you like, yes. It's just an interjection. It's short. But Miriam said that she didn't understand our comment about not liking teenagers acting like teenagers. Mm-hmm. And I think our problem was actually that because the characters are so aged up in the film, they become adults acting like teenagers, and that right. feels like totally wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I want to talk a little bit about actually Miriam's first email that she sent us and the repetitive writing style. Oh, yeah, because that drove me bananas. I particularly, she made me laugh so hard. She said, I mean, I get it was written over 70 years ago, but did people in the 1950s really say everything twice? And did they really say crummy <laughs> five times in one sentence? Oh, my sentence? gosh. Crummy. I don't know, but probably not. <laughs> there is a drinking game to be had in the crummy references. <laughs> Joe Sony. actually texted me and he was like, what does crummy mean? <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like bad, it Joe. Out. It just means bad. Just replace it with the word bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've often wondered about what Salinger is doing here. So Caulfield has had access to a lot of educational opportunity, but he's squandered all of it. But he always does well in English. Right. So I feel like that should mean that if nothing else, he has a vocabulary. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't have a vocabulary, right? He is constantly struggling to express himself. He's constantly struggling to find the words to describe what he means. And he always falls back on phony crummy, hypocrite. Mm -hmm. And those words, you know, I love that contemporary review. Joe sent me a contemporary review from 1951 from the New Yorker. Yeah. And that author points out, and I should say it's S.N. Burnham, who probably isn't alive anymore. But anyway, mm -hmm. <laughs> they said, he's driven crazy by, quote, phoniness, a heading under which he loosely lumps not only insincerity, but snobbery, injustice, callousness to the tears in things, and a lot more. He is a prodigious warrior. It drives me a little bit around the bend, the way he blunts the edges of his critiques by calling everything crummy or phony. Yeah. Because oftentimes he's right, right? Like he is sure. pointing out like the true hypocrisies about the way people exist in the world. But it's just like, there's something very affecting. I was going to say effective, except I don't think it is because it drives me personally around the bend. <laughs> but there's something very affecting about the choice to have him making these often very large discoveries about the world, but being trapped in this absolutely minuscule vocabulary to describe them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is perplexing because in that same piece, Burnham talks about how Obviously, Holden is very well read because he does name drop a number of significant authors of the time. And yet, yeah, when you're reading this, it very much feels like not an uneducated young man, but just someone who is so trapped in this circularity that they just keep repeating phrases and interactions and making the same generally dismissive observations about the world. Like, as someone who enjoys movies, his disdain for the cinematic screen was very annoying to me. And I just kept thinking, is it that this is a teenage boy who feels strongly about things even when he may be is making uninformed, uneducated observations? Or is it that, I don't know, like, in some ways, I think that Salinger is being very clever about mm -hmm. just reinforcing all of this by saying, like, are you getting it? That's why I'm repeating everything so many times. Yeah, I'm sorry, that that was a bit of a declarative statement and not something that was really helpful for you. So Brenna, why don't we shift <laughs> gears and let's talk about the sex because we did get a lot of responses to that. And I think it's one of the things that kind of stands out. So Holden thinks about sex all the time, which is mm -hmm. Teenage boy. age appropriate. One of the things <laughs> that one of the things that came up and I think it was Sophie's tweet thread was it's really distressing how all of the boys treat their dates. Yes. 
It's a lot of date rapey stuff. I was going to say, everybody in this book is an aspiring date rapist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, everybody. And yep. it's this idea that Holden is a particular failure as a teenage boy because he hasn't successfully forced anybody to have sex with him yet. Yeah, he listens to women and he stops when they protest as opposed to trying to work around their resistance. It's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable because he he describes those traits in himself as being yellow and cowardly. Mm -hmm. The fact that he doesn't push women into sex. So there's all of this backdrop of sort of just a culture of rape. Mm -hmm. And then we have Holden who is very much obsessed with his own virginity and the fact that he hasn't effectively tr tricked a woman into having sex with him. Mm -hmm. And yet, at the same time, consent and what women want don't seem that important to him. No. Like, you kind of believe him that he stops, not because he's empathetic towards these women that he's with, but because he is too cowardly to push them the way the boy other boys push them. And I know that's his painting of it in his cultural context, but gosh, that's uncomfortable to read. Mm -hmm. You don't read that and feel like, oh, Holden is like the good guy in this scene. You read it and feel like, oh, if Holden got the right pep talk beforehand, he'd be a rapist too. Great. Yeah, like he's the best of nothing but bad batches. Mm-hmm. And so... To me, I don't know. The, the sex isn't what bothers me here. It's like the cultural underpinnings of the way his obsession is manifest. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was able to almost dissociate from that, if only because I was very cognizant of the time period and like the 1950s, it's post-war men coming back from the battlefields and trying to reclaim their position of authority over a society where women had made a lot of advances in the workforce and stepping out of the household. So I, I almost read it as a crisis of masculinity, mm. but it doesn't make it more palatable. So there's this famous novel, and Joe, you might be more familiar with the film adaptation. It was a Gregory Peck film from the 50s called The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit. Okay. And it's interesting to hear... Holden referencing the man in the gray flannel suit. He's not doing it as a title because the book comes out, I think, four years after Catcher mm. in the Rye. But um, it's like this phrase to describe a particular kind of trapped masculinity. Right. In the novel, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, the idea is that, like, you come back from war, you've done all these horrifying things, you've experienced all these traumas, and now you're, you're trapped in a three-piece suit sitting at a desk. It's the 1950s, so they don't talk about the fact that it's clearly like PTSD and no supports for it. Right. But it's right, like, right. what happens to your masculinity when you leave this theater of war and return to real life? And it looks like something so different than what you thought manliness and masculinity meant. Mm -hmm. And Caulfield makes several references to men in gray flannel suits as like this uniform of trapped discontented masculinity that i right. found really fascinating because it does predate that novel but it just mm -hmm. you have this idea of like for a teenage boy in 1951 you were raised on images of masculinity that were all about like war right mm -hmm. you would have been raised on propaganda effectively yep. that would have been all of the movies that you watched that would have been like everything you had access to as a child and now you have to define for yourself 
a way of being in the world that is unwilling to talk about <laughs> what masculinity could or should be. There's just no vocabulary for it. But you know mm -hmm. that it's not that, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I always associate the 1950s with the rise of like Marlon Brando and James Dean, because once again, I'm sort of obsessed with movies. So that's where my cultural consciousness goes. But, you know, I think about James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. And the reason that that movie became such just such a phenomenon is because it was the first time that we were showing men being delicate and emotional. And it was very much like this is the rise of a new type of man who is in touch with their feelings, who is emotionally damaged and who cannot process it. Like society doesn't know what to do with it. And ultimately it gets him killed. And I feel like Holden is actually a part of that movement. It's just that he doesn't have the wherewithal to be self-reflexive about it. So we talked off the top about how this is almost like a manic episode over three days. And it's like, someone needs to step in and help this boy. Where are the adults? Where mm -hmm. are the people who are going to treat him with kindness? How is he allowed to just roam the city? And I think part of it comes to that privilege, right? Like he has money, he has uh, a gender that isn't going to get him noticed if he goes missing for a couple of days and so on. But at the end of it, it's also like, this is a boy, right? Like this yes. is a teenage boy who, as you just said, He's living with this sense that he's not fulfilling the gender roles of his time because he can't be masculine. He can't be unemotional. He can't get out of his own thoughts. And that's where all of the damage comes from. Well, and I think perhaps this is where we need to talk about the sexual abuse. Can I can I read you the only reference to it in the book, Joe? Mm -hmm. I just found it again. So at one point in the novel... Golden has tried to go to his house to see Phoebe, but he has to escape out of that situation before his parents notice him. Mm -hmm. And so he goes to uh, Mr. Antolini's house. Mr. Antolini is the teacher who actually found the boy who died by suicide at a right. previous school. And so mm -hmm. in many ways, there's like this trauma bond between the two of them that's never yes. acknowledged. And... Um, Holden's sleeping on Mr. Antolini's couch and he wakes up and Mr. Antolini is running a hand through his hair. And mm -hmm. for very important context, Antolini is A, drunk, and B, has just confessed to Holden that he he fears for Holden's life. Right. Like he fears that Holden is about to hit rock bottom and that it's going to be ugly and violent. Mm -hmm. And Holden wakes up, feels Mr. Antolini's hand in his hair, panics, and flees the apartment. It's gay panic, yes. It's total gay panic. And he says at the end, as he's riding down the elevator, he tells us, as the reader, boy, I was shaking like a madman. I was sweating too. When something perverty happens like that, I start sweating like a bastard. That kind of stuff's been happening to me about 20 times since I was a kid. I can't mm -hmm. stand it. Yeah. I think that Holden is pretty clearly overreacting to Mr. Antolini in that scene because... Mr. Antolini has every reason to be sort of fatherly towards mm -hmm. Holden. But obviously there is this history of abuse that we get this one three-sentence reference to yep. in the text that informs all of his interactions with Mr. Antolini. Well, and it's part of the lar large is maybe being generous, but it's part of a conversation that is sort of streamlined through the novel about Holden's 
fear of perverts mm-hmm. who are clearly what he's talking about is gay men. Yes, he refers to them as fullets, which is not a slang that I had ever heard before reading Mm-mm. this book. Yeah. Um, and he sees he sees flits everywhere, right? He's always mm-hmm. commenting like this guy or that guy or so and so or those two men at the bar or 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 and they're never for the most part, men who are attempting to interact with him in any way. That's Mm-mm. important context because he he acts like he is totally always under threat. And so there's like two layers going on, right? There is a gay panic happening in the book. Yeah. Um, and it's something that he has talked about with his friends, right? He invites a friend to the bar who he likes because that friend always knows who's gay and can like let him know. And mm-hmm. the friend has actually moved past that in his life and is kind of like, <laughs> why are you still stuck on this? Yeah. But then we also have this layer of... Holden confessing very obliquely to us that he has been a victim of childhood sexual abuse more than Mm -hmm. once. And, you know, you you add that to the context of having moved from school to school. I mean, I get the sense that that's where the abuse has predominantly taken place. There's that scene where the boy does die by suicide, and we know that something happens with other boys in his room before he jumps. Mm -hmm. But we aren't told what. There is this layer of homophobia that Mm -hmm. frames every queer coded man he comes in contact with as a predator and also a sense of his own failures of masculinity and wanting to kind of shore himself up by othering Mm -hmm. those gay men and then we do also have this layer of abuse that has gone on and i don't know what to do with all of that but it's really uncomfortable Yeah, it's interesting because I think at one point early, eh, midway through the book, I may have messaged you and said, is Holden queer? Mm -hmm. Because I was very much getting a kind of sexual questioning early Mm -hmm. in the book. And part of this may just be it's homosocial relationships where Holden is a boy who doesn't feel like he fits in with other boys, but he is so deeply interested in connecting. And part of the the book's exploration is literally just Holden trying to find someone who will take an interest in him because he is so by himself. But, But especially around his relationships with men it often seems like he is trying to win their favor or impress Mm -hmm. them or be accepted by them in a way that in my contemporary lens read very queer, Mm -hmm. which then becomes deeply troubled and maybe even problematic if you start to put in his reaction to Phillips and his potential sexual abuse by gay men. You're like, oh, what what is happening? It's a conflation that always makes me very, very uncomfortable because there's a suggestion in certain pockets of any kind of a like art community, like films, books, whatever, that boys who are molested grow up to become queer. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about this a little bit when we talked on Mysterious Skin. Mm-hmm. So it's just another complicated layer that... We just don't even have enough information to make any kind of judgment on, right? Like, you're talking about three lines. We're trying to read between the lines of other passages in this book, but there's not enough to go on here. No, there's really not. It's a frustration to me uh, that this book was published in 1951. Like, I feel like even 10 years later, we might have gotten Mm -hmm. more to go by. 
So what you're saying is you want to read the Swedish author who wrote a sequel that takes place when Holden Caulfield is 70 years old and was only published in six countries. (laughs) No, no, I don't. I, wow. That's a no. (laughs) Mm. It's a no for me, dog. (laughs) Sidebar. If anybody has read that, I don't even know if it actually got published because it was very much challenged by Salinger and Salinger's estate. But uh, if anybody knows what that book is like, I would love to know. So I have two more points I want to make that are real gear shift. Okay. One is that, well, I have a point and a question, Joe. So my point is, I think we need to think about Catcher in the Rye, apart and aside from its content, as an example of what happens when a book is severely challenged and banned in places. Mm -hmm. J.D. Salinger published very little with the rest of his life. Right. And it's always seemed odd to people, right? He was a a real recluse. He didn't do media interviews. He didn't talk publicly about his writing. And he published almost nothing. He said in 1962, There's a marvelous peace in not publishing. It's peaceful, still. Publishing is a terrible invasion of my privacy. I like to write. I love to write. But I write just for myself and my own pleasure now. Hmm. You know, he never responded to attempts to ban his book. He never responded to the challenges in the way some authors are very public about. And many Mm -hmm. people have taken that sort of reclusion as, at least in part, a reaction to the reaction to his writing. Yeah, okay. And I think it's important to think about bans and challenges and the chilling effect that they impart. We've talked about it in terms of publishing, like what publishing will and won't take a risk on. Mm-hmm. And we've talked a little bit about like what never makes it to a page that we get to read because right. someone has the notion of banning or challenging books in the back of their head. Uh-huh. And I think that's important. Yep. My second point, which is a question, Joe, is why do you think we never got a Catcher in the Rye movie? Oh, gosh. Yeah. It was a question I had in the back of my mind because obviously this book is so celebrated and so known like as a cultural entity it's a giant right and i can't help but wonder if it's in part because of that reclusivity like i don't know whether or not somebody owns the rights to make a movie or if maybe salinger never made them available but Mm -hmm. i think the best case situation like for comparison's sake would be to kill a mockingbird where If every star aligns, that's what you get. But the likelihood is, is that people are going to mess it up. So I can't help but wonder if nobody wants to take a crack at it for fear of doing it injustice. Yeah. But it's baffling because (laughs) it seems ripe, like it's right there and everybody knows the catcher of the rye. And Joe would love it because it would have so much voiceover narration. Pass. Hard pass. Hard, (laughs) hard pass. Brenna, it's walking and voiceover narration. (laughs) Two of the things we love most on this podcast. (laughs) Can I give the last word on this book to Tea Books and Chocolate? Absolutely. I love this. I think Holden is traumatized and an asshole, but not an asshole because he is traumatized. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a perfect summation. Tea Books and Chocolate goes on to give a very thoughtful reading of how you know he will probably grow out of this self-centered period of his life and some of the abrasiveness is trauma and she Mm -hmm. says she doesn't always think this is particularly well done which given that ptsd wasn't even a diagnosis when this book was published doesn't surprise me but yeah i I keep coming back to that i think holden is traumatized and an asshole not an asshole because he is traumatized Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was a good pick to start this series off. And I'm really interested to kind of toggle back and forth between some of the classics and some of the more contemporary versions. But I feel like this was a good grounding to kind of set the tone and begin thinking about this concept. And our next book is a jump into the modern. So when we when we read our band book for next month, we're doing This One Summer by Jillian Tamaki and Mariko Tamaki. I'm excited to talk about that one because it's a book that has been challenged in classrooms. It's mm-hmm. also a book that, because of its very structure, has been challenged by awards agencies. So I want to talk a little bit about that too. Interesting. And just because we promised to give people a heads up... We are also going to tell you what we're going to read after this one summer, which is The Pig Man by Paul Zindel. And I've never heard of that. I have no frame of reference. Paul Zindel is one of the OGs of YA literature. And if you have read and liked A.S. King, she Mm. talks a lot about how Zindel influences everything she writes for young readers. So there's my teaser. There's my selling point. Okay. That is a very good selling point. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe before we do our sign-offs and remind everybody about Unpregnant, I'll just give a quick shout-out to a listener, Laura, who wrote in from Germany. Because, of course, when we started this, we also asked people, particularly our foreign listeners, if they would give us a hint of a book that might have been banned or challenged in their respective countries. So Laura is a German listener and provided us a little bit of context about the way that they do things there. So it it was pretty interesting to hear that they actually have a federal review board for media harmful to minors. Uh, And there are currently 420 books on that list. But Laura made the interesting observation that The majority of the books have been on the list because of unconstitutional content, aka extreme right-wing racist content, or incite hatred. So it actually sounds a little bit more like, oh, they're trying to ban or challenge books that might be conceived as harmful. So the thing that we're often not seeing in North America. Yeah, obviously Germany has a really strong interest in not allowing fascism to take root which mm-hmm. i don't know joe it's uh it's the trucker convoy here in canada today we're obviously a little bit less concerned about fascism oh, taking root here yeah I, uh, I wasn't gonna talk about it but joe oh my god you had to it's so dumb it's so stupid yeah it's so frustrating oh anyway. mm-hmm. yeah folks if you want to <laughs> learn more about that just unfortunately google it but yeah anyway I wanted to thank Laura for writing in and giving us a little bit of context, but she did also make a recommendation, a book from 2008 called Wetlands by Charlotte Roach. I looked it up and this was apparently the bestseller of the year. So it's a German book, but it was the number one bestselling book of the year. Oh, wow. I think not just in Germany. It does have a film adaptation, Brenna. And this one got into some very significant challenges because it was decried by critics as basically well-marketed pornography but it's about (laughs) an 18 year old girl who subjects herself to some fairly extreme sounding sexual activities to remain in hospital so oh i'm interested enough that i think we might need to add it to the schedule down the road yeah 
Yeah, definitely. And also a little trepidatious, but okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, okay. I started to read the Wikipedia entry describing the plot, and it does not sound very good for our G rating on this <laughs> podcast. Uh, so we, we might have to put some extreme content warnings if we proceed with it. Wow, okay. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for the suggestion and for writing in to let us know what banned books look like in your neck of the woods. If you're listening from somewhere with books being banned or challenged, we want to hear about it. Whether you live in a school district in the U.S. that's battling CRT or you live somewhere that's actively trying to stop fascism, you know, mm-hmm. either way, uh, you can get to us long form hkhspod at gmail.com. Or if you've got something shorter, or you want to share some feedback about this episode or any other, you can find us at hkhspod on the Twitters or hashtag hkhspod. Joe, where do they find you to send you their Holden Caulfield fan fiction? <laughs> I could be reached at B stole my remote and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And yes, we are reading Unpregnant next week. Mm -hmm. And if you're getting ready for book club, the next two books are This One Summer and The Pigman. So until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Phony. (laughs) Old Brenna. Yeah, and I I love that, right? Like, I think that's actually one of the reasons why the book has had the longevity that it's had. Like, it's a very deft, complicated, nuanced, maybe not nuanced, but let me try that again. I think one of the reasons that the book has ended up having this longevity as a bit of like a gem and why Mm -hmm. it ends up just continually coming. Oh, my God. Okay, so uh, maybe one final thing before we do our outro and remind everybody that we're reading Unpregnant. I also wanted to give a quick shout out to a new... Oh my god, shut up. (laughs) I just, the thing I don't understand, Joe, is what is left to renovate in their apartment. Apparently everything. Maybe they've gutted the whole frickin' thing. I don't understand it. And I don't want (laughs) to live under it anymore. (laughs) 